Welcome to Serial Curious. Before we get started on today's episode, we're going to acknowledge where your three speakers are in the world and whose native lands they are coming to you from. I'm Mark Spencer. I'm on the lands of Tamaki Makoro, Auckland, New Zealand, Aotearoa. I would like to acknowledge the six iwi of the Maori peoples on whose lands I am coming to you tonight. I want to acknowledge the Treaty of Waitangi, Titiriti, and the sovereignty it gives over this land to the Maori people. And I'm Eve, and I'm here on the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, and I'd like to acknowledge their elders past and present. Thanks, Eve and Mark. My name's Angelica, and I'm on the lands of the Camaradjil people of the Eora Nation, and sovereignty was never ceded, and I pay my respects to elders past, present, and emerging. This is a content warning for today's episode. There will be swearing in this and probably many future episodes of Surely Curious. So if you are a small child or are constitutionally sensitive, uh, please be aware that there is some strong language coming up. <laughs> Hello and welcome to this clusterfuck. Um, <laughs> it's a show where two friends, Mark and Eve exercise some of our near-limitless curiosity. Now, sometimes we have knowledgeable friends on to help us answer our questions, and sometimes we just ask each other these questions and stare blankly at the wall and try to make sense of what the hell is going on in the world. But today's topic is one of our less humorous topics. And, you know, we've talked over fishing, we've talked resource exploitation and modern slavery, and that's really saying something. So today we're talking fascism and the environmental movement, and what these two topics have in common. Eve, would you be so kind as to introduce our special guest? I can indeed. Today we have Angelica, who's a fellow Climactic Collective member, and she's a general, politically savvy woman, and she knows a thing or two about fascism. Angelica, welcome. Thank you for having me on all right. So why? Why are we talking about fascism in 2021? Like, you know, this is, this is all going to be about World War II. It's all history. No, sadly not. Even as much as I want it to be, it's not. Um, so to grab a couple things straight pretty much from the news headlines as we record this, the 13th of July... The first is a recently finished New York Times podcast miniseries. Um, it's me. I had to bring up a podcast in some way. And it's called Day X. And it was the result of like two or three years of like hard out investigative journalism by the New York Times. And it was into the far right extremist movement in Germany. And it showed that over the course of those two or three years of doing that journalism, uh, they went from a couple dozen cases of known far right members, uh, you know, members of far right groups, neo Nazis infiltrating the German security forces, those numbers went up to the thousands uh, when that reporting finished earlier this year. So nice and horrifying that. And then literally, as we record this ripped from today's headlines, the Australian federal government's own campaign of using military terminology to promote vaccines of arm yourself against the vaccine, roll up your arms, get a jab, that's fine, but literally arm yourself, arm your family, arm your dog, arm your kids. Thanks, Australian government. That doesn't have any problematic overtones with far-right ideology at all. Yikes. Um, why are we talking about this today, though, Eve? It's not those reasons. I just want to sort of situate us in the, the milieu of today's news. You saw no. something on your social media feed. Yes, 
Mark, sadly, fascism is on the rise and we here at Climactic are not immune. So the reason that we are talking about this today is that we, as a collective, did a profile of a very well-known social media influencer in the zero waste world. And I have a habit of um, just kind of trolling people that are like far right adjacent, like a little bit eco-fascist and seeing what comes up on social media. And I was surprised to see this comment of hers in the context of musicians who are working with Pete Evans. Now, for our Australian listeners, I expect you know who Pete Evans is. But for those who don't know, Pete Evans is a celebrity chef neo-Nazi who loves QAnon and anti-Semitic conspiracy theories. And after being kicked off social media, he moved to Byron Bay to set up a commune that is ready for, uh, you know, the apocalypse. I don't know, but it's ready for something. They're readying themselves. Um, Anyway, so this is what the um, influencer who we have interviewed here on Climactic, uh, it was was her take on people working with Pete Evans. Life is for learning and connecting and growing. Good on you for inoculating yourselves with a new perspective and keeping open minds and hearts. Everything is politicized from what we eat to even apparently who we meet. We cannot control what others do. And in your quest to share your music, why turn down any opportunity to spread light and love and rhythm and dance and joy through your music? Why discriminate? And so really we have Angelica on and we're having this whole chat mostly to answer that question of why discriminate? Because I think it's a really good idea to discriminate against Pete Evans. So Angelica, can you please talk to that? Um, thank you, Eve. That's a, like, these are really big issues and I was definitely following the Pete Evans saga last year. Um, cause that's what I also do. I follow doom scroll weird weird people on the internet. Um, But definitely, uh, why do we need to discriminate? That's a really good question. And it kind of comes back to if we allow intolerant views to permeate our our society, um, we are allowing those, we're allowing those to flourish and we're building coalitions of people to hurt people. So um, basically what I think, and what I, you know, I've read some literature and people have come up with an idea that's called the paradox of intolerance, which is we have to be intolerant to people who are actually intolerant to other people. Otherwise, it's it just ends up with mass um, hysteria and also results in people actually being hurt. Can you give us a little bit of a grounding, Angelica, for, for people like me who think that fascism is a thing that lived and then died during World War II. Like, can you give us a bit of a ground? Like, I, like in my head and probably many people, like, fascism is synonymous with Hitler and Mussolini, and that's it. But, like, but what, what is fascism? Um, so I, uh, I don't claim to be an expert, but, you know, I, I will call on the work of people who are experts. And it's really a hyper-nationalism um, that is built on the ideas of tradition and populism and usually it, it happens in 
newly developed countries as they learn to and, and engage with political systems. And there's usually a power vacuum uh, where people and leaders come up and say, well, I have some simple solutions to really, really complex and hard problems. Now, if... Yeah. And I, and I, I know I'm not giving it the, the justice it deserves because, again, this is something that, like, many people have thought a lot about. And I also want to point out that there was fascist movements pretty much everywhere in the world, um, not just... Mussolini and Hitler, but we also had England, there was France, there was a movement in France. We had our own special fascist movement um, in Australia. You don't say, Angelica, what? my God. As you'll, as you'll uh, <laughs> probably figure out, um, uh, I, I have this thesis that Australia is, is, is uniquely positioned to have a lot of these far-right slash fascist inclinations and tendencies. So... I actually have a podcast coming out about our fascist movement in Australia, but that's that's a little plug, little little plug. We discuss in more detail like how it comes about and how people fight back as well, because um, that's the other story about this is which is fascist movements aren't inevitable, um, they aren't impenetrable, and they are defeatable. And I think that's a really big point that I want to make. Sure, we can talk about the, the, the specifics of what fascist movements look like, but I don't think it, it, it adds much to conversation. Maybe to keep us within our guardrails and sort of what brought us here today talking about this is what do we need to be on the lookout for in the environmental movement and, and specifically this term of eco-fascism. Thank you for the grounding in sort of what fascism is, Angelica, and the fact we haven't left it behind on the ashbin of history. Eve, can you tell us a bit about what eco-fascism is and, and how fascism has any place amongst the granola-eating, peacenik, sandal-wearing hippies we all know and love in the environmental movement? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And um, I'm going to leave the discussion of the concepts of like blood and soil to Angelica. But what I see in terms of the way that fascist tendencies have really already kind of really well established within the environmental movement um, is all around ideas of eugenics. So I know that it's like my cis straight white privilege. That means that I'm blind to a myriad of other systemic problems within the environmental movement. And I'm not, by any means denying that, but I am disabled. And so what I have witnessed is um, this tolerance for really virulent ableism. I think everyone has been around that friend who will happily tolerate an anti-vax cafe as long as they're vegan. It's a vegan cafe. Um, and, you know, the people that are really stooped in um, this idea of wellness and that sustainability and wellness that overlap um, can be really dangerous and it, and it and it can lead to a devaluation of certain people's lives but in terms of the long history of environmentalism and fascism I mean eco-fascism I don't know Angelica but to me when I now read eco-fascism I think like well all fascism's kind of eco-fascism right 
I, I would agree with that, actually. Um, I think you can't separate it out from, like, the straight, like, straight vanilla fascism, if you want to call it that. Mm. It's the same. So, so help me out, then, as, as someone who's, you know, yes, I'm, I, I'm, I'm so dumb, all I know is some history. And, like, all I can picture is, like, you know, tanks rolling through Paris, and that's fascism to me. Why is it that the roots or the the influence of the eco in fascism is so inextractable? Well, uh, 125 years ago, 130 years ago, eugenics is a, a very accepted scientific fact. Um, that's something that, like, is an uncomfortable fact that we, when we, and, you know, I, I don't claim, I don't think that eugenics is the accepted scientific fact anymore, but uh, in the process of developing work around eugenics, uh, people developed um, an appreciation for the natural landscapes. And in those, in those positions, they, they applied the wildlife eugenics to people. And this comes through a particularly specific person whose name is Madison Grant. Um, and he was best friends with uh, the eponymous uh, Teddy Roosevelt in the... Of the teddy bear fame. Of the teddy bear fame. You know, really important. Really good for American imperialism as well. Sorry. <laughs> that, it, 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 all, it all tracks, by the way. So he, mm-hmm. uh, Teddy Roosevelt and a bunch of his other friends uh, ended up creating like a very, very exclusive conservation club. Uh, and they were important for the development and protection of natural wonders without Indigenous people, but they are the people who developed Yellowstone and Yosemite as national parks for the first time in you know recorded history. Um, by the way, Australia had the second national park in the world, the National Park in Sydney. So we're, we're very deeply invested in this story, by the way, in 1867. But Madison Grant sees that there's an increase in immigrants and they are taking up his precious natural world. He had long-standing ties to the Sierra Club, which is also a really famous and really important conservation club in America. Who are the- also advocate for overpopulation arguments too. Right? Oh, yeah. They've yeah. they've really walked back a lot of those arguments lately. Oh, good. Oh, yeah, nice. They've, they've actually um, changed a lot of their... There is some movement here. And so Madison Grant uh, develops these national parks and he sees the increase of people and immigrants to, to the US who are using up the natural resources and he focuses on one particular set of the immigrants, which were, which were Eastern European Jewry. Uh, and he sees them in particular, although he doesn't like other immigrants, can I just make this very clear? But he sees the Eastern European Jewry as not being right for the country and not right for the natural environment, which he prizes so deeply. And so his exclusive conservation club, which was also a really, um, was filled with very important people, like Teddy Roosevelt, who was a president, briefly. Um, he advocates for the Immigration Act um, and stops immigration briefly. Um, he is a very good political operator. Then at that point, he writes a book of race science called The Passing of the Great Race. Now, it would be 
it would be remiss of me not to to highlight that this is complete drivel. It talks, it's unscientific even at the time, but it's highly embraced, so widely embraced that our friend in Germany, Mr. Hitler, um, has it on his book list. Basically, has it on his bedside table, and he calls it his Bible. Now, the importance of the eugenics movement. His conservation ideas and the fact that it turned up on Hitler's bedstand ends up tended as evidence in the Nuremberg trials. So we got we start with Yosemite bedstand Nuremberg trials. Yes, and for those who aren't that, you know, World War Two history nerds, uh, the Nuremberg trials were the trials for the war crimes of World War Two. So it was the it was the war crimes of the Holocaust. Yeah. And the, re- the relevance of having this particular book tended as evidence is to show why they were war criminals and why they did their thing. So it's a more of an ideological understanding rather than... Yeah. yeah. And um, to draw a potential parallel between what Germany's pretext for the origins of World War II, of, of Lebensraum and living space, is in some ways potentially like Hitler's proto-German national parks applied to Europe when you're displacing Eastern Europeans instead of Native Americans, and a shooting war actually ensues. I think where my head went to, particularly when it came to what you were just saying, Angelica, um, about the way that um, Madison Grant hated the way that immigration was impacting on his precious environment was... Yeah, the idea of deep ecology and, and the blood and soil arguments of, of the Nazi era, which was about how you have to have really deep intergenerational roots in a place in order to truly value it. And, and people who are arriving, you know, don't understand the ecology and don't understand the place. And so <clears throat> aren't as morally uh, good as virtuous as you is that kind of a good understanding basically of blood and soil that's a really good idea and i i I don't hesitate to talk to you that like it's one of uses a dog whistle online if you see uh, blood and soil in somebody's twitter bio bio or in their tinder you know you need to be really like fuck then this is a red flag we need to get out of here as fast as you can I've seen it, on that t- is like, an explicit reference you've to seen Nazi ideology. Soil on Tinder, <laughs> no, not me, but I've seen um, screenshots of oh on Tinder God. and other dating apps. So obviously, um, they're appealing to a certain type of person when they're mm-hmm. seeking out a mate. But would this be a good time for me to ask? Because I'm not down with the hip young people and uh, modern lingo, but I, I have seen a few places. Like I, I went on to a Reddit thread the other day and it's you know memes about the environment and and uh climate and one of the rules was no fascies and i'm like what is that can anyone tell me what a what a fascie is for old man mark well i don't think this is a, a silly question by the way um language is ever evolving and i think it, it, it runs to a long tendency to take slurs and destigmatize by embracing them and many, many actual vulnerable groups have, have done this with great success. That's why the word slut isn't so much a slur anymore. Go, go us. We've, we've yeah. destigmatized. But 
fascists have decided they're also a vulnerable and uh, oppressed group and have taken the slur and embraced it to destigmatize it and have wide dissemination, which is a problem. And it kind of speaks to a sense that they are always uh, seeking, there is always an enemy. And we'll talk about a little bit more about what this looks like, but there's always enemies and they are oppressed, even though, even if they're winning. What else should we be on the lookout for? Because I know, like, you know, why, why is Pete Evans bad? Well, like, he's done some things overtly to associate himself with the fascists and this movement. And, and what is that that he's done? I understand there's runes involved, which is not like metal and Viking and cool, like I would have thought, potentially. Well, there is a sense of paganism associated with the Nazis that they appropriated, um, and they used it to dog whistle and make symbols that weren't specifically the swastika. And that included one that Pete Evans used in a post, which is called a Sonnenrad, and that's just a, a sun with many, many arms. So when he posted that, uh, he he made explicit reference to the Sonnenrad, which is evident in many of the Nazi um, buildings. So, like, it's not just, oh, this is kind of related. It is actually explicit. So the Sonnenrad, and there is the, there's another kind of famous one, which is just, it's a much more simple than the, the many-armed sun. It's just, um, looks like a it's tree. It's a tree, yeah. Which is kind of like the peace symbol without the circle turned upside down. I'm just going to point out that both of those symbols are symbols of natural wonders. So if we talk about eco-fascism, we'll talk about like natural wonders and their relationship with fascism. Yes, and, and that's sort of a really... The way that fascists historically have Trojan-horsed their way into power is through these ideas of returning to the natural order of things, returning to nature, returning to these ideals of being more in touch with our places and in fascist terms, our nation, national identity, um, often overvaluing of like the, and romanticizing of the agrarian society. I mean, like not actually understanding the bloody hard slog it is to be done by serfs, done by people who yeah. had no autonomy or rights and a rejection of the cosmopolitan is that it's an interesting um discussion because it's it sort of there's a there's a there's a serious contradiction within nazi slash fascism in that they are are so interested in in developing a connection with the land but they're also interested in developing technology to subdue the land and i think that it's not a, it's not an explicit contradiction because if you mesh that um idea of 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 control through technology then you control the land and that's that's an explicit discussion about who has um the superior knowledge to um control uh ecology so it's a very complicated multifaceted thing and i think this is something i need to make very clear about fascism it's amorphous it changes and there's many facets and it and it it changes depending on where it is so an australian fascism even in one place it doesn't need to be self-consistent right like it's okay for it to be contradictory it is okay about being 
making sense. It's about having power. Yeah, and I think that's that's the main point. We talk about power and superiority as like the main uh, issue, and this is why we'll talk about like online communities and eco-fascists and using Trojan horse because they have a level of power and influence that they can explicitly use. Is it possible for like fascists to behave in a fascist way without having like a leader appointed? Because like. Were, people were doing this kind of stuff before Hitler kind of managed to climb to the top of the playground pile of bullies being bullies. There was potential other candidates in this whirling maelstrom of post-World War One Germany. It seems like at the moment it's like, well, there can't be fascists because there's not like a clear leader waiting in the wings. But there's like a clear, I guess, romanticization and wish for someone like it remains to be seen who in their I think in their eyes, but like someone. God, I hope they don't have a leader in mind. <laughs> but like it, it seems like they're, they're, yeah, in the face of complicated, scary problems, the desire for someone to have enough power to act unilaterally to do something and enact a simple situation. That seems to be enough for people to act in a fascist way. Like it's weird that fascists can be fascists without a leader of the someone they appointed to take that sort of supreme power position were they to get the opportunity does that make sense that like sort of in my own confusion about like but but no nazis without hitler but this is like nazis running around doing a whole bunch of stuff to pave the way for the as yet unknown secret hitler i think it's a very good summary i think um and obviously when they're leaderless and decentralized they aren't as much of a threat so uh, i mean the, the it also gives us space to figure out that they they where they live and de-radicalize people who might be have tendencies but aren't explicitly there yet so i think this gives us a bit of mitigation and adaption um c- capacities yeah and i think particularly when it comes to things like the climate crisis i think it's a really we have this opportunity where we don't have that sort of eco-fascist charismatic leader yet that's emerged to really fight against those tendencies now because, you know, the way that fascists, like you said, Mark, they play on fear and the irrationality of it. And as this crisis heats up, as it will, and people will become more scared and it's much more easy to come through with a perceived solution for an in-group. And so I think, yeah, it's a really important time to consider and remain vigilant against infiltration, not in the movement, not well in the movements that we disagree in, but particularly in the people that we would agree with because they're the people where it might come as a surprise that, oh, you're like a fascist. <laughs> and they're the people who have influence and power over us. surprise fascist. Yeah. yeah, yeah. The kind of people who say, well, you know, I, I'm constantly the type of person that bemoans that, you know, that the, the UN, for instance, can't do more. But I don't wish ultimate power to any one body in response to the climate crisis. I don't want, yeah ultimate power to rest with any one person or group. I like a decentralized 
even though the pace can be frustrating and here i am you know it, it here's my lever if someone came to me with a subtle suggestion of here's how we could act quicker on climate change all you have to do is give up some of your own power and right to disagree with me and autonomy and civil liberties and i'd be like hmm secret fascist <laughs> so why should or shouldn't i punch a fascist especially when we're talking about eco-fascism and I feel like eco-fascists would have softer faces and <laughs> it would be easier to punch than a, a Nazi on the street. Like, um, thank you, 2021, for the reality where we've all kind of had to ask ourselves the question of, would I punch a Nazi? And, like, that's just in the public discourse. That's a question that we're asking ourselves. We're asking each other because there is now opportunities they present themselves out in the world. They say, hello, yes, hi, I am a Nazi. And I have to ask myself, do I now decide to punch you in the face or not? Um, what do we think? Like, has anyone encountered that situation before? Some, well, some of us take them to lunch. I'll talk to it. Um, yeah, I, I can answer that. So in terms of punching Nazis, I always thought I would. And I think, like, if I met, like, a YouTuber who's making a whole load of money off, like, spreading Nazi ideology, I still think I'd punch them. Because, ugh. But what I did for my colleague, who was in a minimum wage, casual job, he had severe mental health issues. He kind of knew that what he was doing and how he was living wasn't good. Like, he didn't want to be the way he was. And so I bought him a sandwich twice a week for lunch every week and just like let him go on these tirades. And then like, if there was any kind of opening to undo the way he was thinking, <laughs> I would just take that chance. And every time I saw there was an opening, I just like not fully challenge him because you can't, challenge someone who's been radicalized. They want the challenge. They want the fight. And so you have to like subtly unpick the way that they're thinking and hopefully put them on a different path. And so we were on a break at work together and he was telling me all about how he went from wanting to be a cop to supporting Black Lives Matter and telling his community why it's not all lives matter why it's black lives matter and i was like yes we made it we made progress and then he said the most horrifically anti-semitic thing i've ever heard <laughs> and i was like okay okay we'll keep walking we'll keep working we'll keep going. do you feel like three sandwiches a week would have done it just to get all the way there. I, I can't afford buying <laughs> someone else lunch Look, three times I can't a week. just buy every Nazi I see a sandwich. <laughs> no. Well, and they have to be a long-term sandwich engagement. Yep. Like, it, yep. it wasn't going to be one sandwich. You can't buy a Nazi one sandwich. Nope. you got to keep buying the sandwiches. Yep. Yeah. Yep. But that's great. And it, it's a real shame that in a... I'll, I'll acknowledge the the lost recordings of this episode that we've we've had a couple bites of this apple, a couple cracks at this recording, and in a previous chat we we reached a great moment where we realized that you know that maybe there's a bit of 
sort of long-term insecurity, economic instability, all the all the economic factors that kind of make someone seek simple answers to complicated questions and be sort of fascist vulnerable. And we kind of realized that, you know, yeah, Eve's sandwich intervention was probably doing a lot more good than someone coming along and punching this guy in the face. So thank you, Eve. Yes, which is, I think Angelica would agree with me that, like, someone, like, casual working class who is struggling versus a rich guy who's making money off spreading propaganda are two very different things. You should only ever punch one of them in the face. <laughs> so I'm going to talk to Mark's point about if you should punch a Nazi. And I kind of come down on the same point as Eve, um, but I come from personal experience. Like, my brother was mentored by a dude whose grandfather was a Nazi and had very questionable thoughts. Uh, Packaged that up with a bit of Christianity and it was a really, really dangerous um, thing. So I had to softball a whole bunch of things because I was like, you know that that's a Nazi, Jez. That person was really, really influenced by a Nazi. But then also you can't face it full on because you know they come from a place of ignorance and it's, it's a hard discussion to have. I've also seen people who are on the pipeline have said very bad things to me and i think i'll i'll speak for a lot of people but you can check their um their beliefs in a sense that you can push back because not only you're reminding them that other views exist but that other people in the conversation will also see that there's pushback and they're like oh i may have thought something similar to that but seeing that there's a pushback it's not a complete answer i'm gonna be very clear about this not a complete answer but it is something to address it. And I think, yeah, one of the things that it's also important to note is that we're all white and it's much easier for us, like it's not dangerous for us to challenge a Nazi generally. Like, it's not dangerous for us, it's not re-traumatizing for us, and so that means that it's important for us to do it so that it doesn't fall on the burden of someone who has to deal with traumatic memories and feeling in danger in the moment because that's awful and yeah. shouldn't happen. Yeah. That's a really, really excellent point. Um, one thing that, you know, all my obsessive watching of World War II stuff and reading books and everything has, has left me with all those, those idioms and those little thought experiments that were specifically designed in the wake of World War II to prevent something like this from happening again and, and the old axes of whatever you walk past is what you'll condone. The lovely parable of like, you know, first they came for the Poles and I wasn't a Pole. First they came for the Slavs and I wasn't a Slav and I said nothing. And then they came for me and no one could stand up for me or say anything for me because everyone else was gone. And I think those are extremely powerful for a very, very good reason. And um, like that hugely helps me in answering our hypothesis question of why should we discriminate against things that we see in the world that are fashy, that are fashy adjacent, that are even close to being fascist? Because the modus operandi of fascism, of course, isn't to just come right out and say, hi, hello, I'm a fascist. It's, hey, friend, here's something that sounds good to you. Will you give me a little bit of power, please? And identifying it as early as possible and heading it off. 
Is that oversimplistic or is that maybe the right thing to take away? At risk of saying that um, a simple answer to a complicated problem, um, I, I agree. I think like we don't exert a huge amount of power in our lives, but we have spheres of influence and those are something that we need to assess. We also need to make a decision in the moment if it's the right thing to do in that situation, but it's a good stepping forward. It's a good foundation. I think also we're in a climate emergency right now. It's only going to get scarier. And that means that it's hugely important that we not only identify this stuff, but get really disciplined in challenging it and making challenging those ideas muscle memory. Because I don't know, I'm sure, I, I, I do know, we've spoken about this before, but all three of us have had that visceral gut reaction towards fascism in the face of fear. And so it's important for all of us to be able to identify it and check it and challenge it when we see it, every time we see it, so that it doesn't get hold as this gets scarier and more damaging. Yeah, that's perfect. Just to, to maybe wrap up on, you know, make it really disquieting and unsettling for people as we kind of get closer to the end of this episode. But ask yourselves, is Australia's immigration policy not a fascist policy? Is it not a fear-based response, an extremely blunt force reaction to a temporarily scary situation of people, people arriving by boat? Oh, God, here's, here's the axe we'll bring down. What else do we walk by every day that that we are condoning? I just want to jump off Mark's point, which is uh, also if you just tend to notch up a little bit, which is I think is my whole point, is that Australians' tendencies are, are already got like hyper nationalism built into them. But imagine that there's a bunch of climate refugees from the Asia Pacific. Suddenly, those refugee policies become a lot more discriminatory and they are already extremely discriminatory we are going to see more of that effect and we're going to say well, we want to protect our land from these invaders and forget that the reason that they have such inequalities is because some people decided to hoard some resources and instead of distributing them equitably the infrastructure is already in place here and yeah it's important that we challenge it every chance we get. Thank you both so much for talking to me about this. Um, I know I had a lot of questions. Uh, is there any remaining questions either of you want to ask on this topic before we wrap it up and maybe come back, probably definitely come back for a part two on this topic. Definitely wanted to address the inspiration, the spark for this, which was... Yeah, we had an episode on the Climactic Collective with someone who uh, we wanted to talk about some of the more troubling aspects of. Let's let's be honest. And I want you as our listeners to know that the door is open to challenge us and let us know when we have walked past things we shouldn't have. It's sadly going to happen, but we want to learn from it each time and avoid that more and more going forward. Eve, Angelica, do you have any sort of final questions or thoughts on this topic before we say adieu? It was a very bad French accent by me. <laughs> I just wanted to point out, like, this is this is fightable. This is, like, we can win if we mm. do it all together. Like, it's not a, 
unending struggle and it's not going to always... It, it isn't inevitable that we will we'll win. Or lose. I want to do a whole episode on anti-vaxxers in Byron Bay, but mm. that's a whole other thing. I have many questions. So many. Oh my god. If well, you have um, me on, I have thoughts too. <laughs> oh yeah, well we could do Oh my god, road trip. Out of lockdown. <laughs> It starts with P and rhymes with Rivalage. This is my last thought, guys. I don't care if your vegan cafe is low carbon. Anti-vax cafes are eugenicists. It's eugenics. It's not okay. And I just go and eat avocado on toast somewhere else. Here, here. That's what I'm going to finish. We're going to end on a really um, divisive note and say get a jab yeah arm yourself (laughs) (laughs) do as scott says get a jab arm yourself yeah all right good god see you guys later thank you